what would a perfect church look like? You know, if you were talking to somebody who was religious and perhaps was seeking to be joined to a church, and you ask them, what would a perfect church look like? I imagine they would respond, well, a perfect church would be one where there's no arguments ever. There's no divisions. There's no drama. Everybody gets along perfectly, and nobody ever makes mistakes. That's what a perfect church would be to me. And maybe they would have other things to add to that, but I imagine that would be a large portion of what they were looking for in a perfect church. And my question I want to investigate is, is that realistic to expect? Uh, Is it even possible to have a perfect church where there's no division, there's no drama, and everybody agrees perfectly and completely, 100% about everything. My thinking is surely if there was a perfect church, it would be the church we read about in the book of Acts and in the Bible. And so what I'd like to do this morning for our study, um, I did some investigating. I want to share what I found as as I walked through uh, and looked at the early church seeking a church that was perfect in this sense of the term. And I want to investigate and share with you what I found as far as uh, should we expect to find a perfect church with uh, no division, no drama. Everybody gets along. That's the subject of my study this morning. But before we continue, let's take a moment to go to God in prayer. Well, the logical place to start looking or searching for a perfect church would be at the beginning of the book of Acts, because that's the earliest point in the history of the church. The book of Acts starts directly after Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, and His apostles were left there on the earth and given a work to do, spreading the gospel. And the, uh, the church looks very bright when you begin in Acts 2, and you have 3,000 who are saved on the day of Pentecost. And then you keep going at the end of Acts 4, and you read about the kind of attitude that was present in the early church. Acts 4.32 says, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. That's an amazing description right there. This whole group of believers, they had one heart, they had one mind, they were united, and in fact, they made sure that everybody in their number was taken care of. They were selling their possessions to make sure that nobody was destitute, that everybody had what they needed in order to survive. In fact, we even read of a man called Barnabas who sold everything that he had. He decided he wanted to be uh, a preacher, 
And so he sold all that he had to make provision for those who were in need in the church. So that's amazing. It's looking pretty good here in Acts 4. But then we begin Acts chapter 5, and it becomes not so good. It says in verses 1 and 2, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, Ananias and Sapphira perhaps were there in that very congregation that Barnabas was a part of. And that must have been an amazing thing that Barnabas did to sell what he had to devote his life to the gospel. I imagine there were a lot of people who encouraged him and who praised him for his dedication. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they were watching and they thought, man, we'd really like to be appreciated like that. We'd like to be praised like that, but we don't want to sell everything we've got. We'd like to keep part of that. And so they came up with this scheme where they had some land and they sold it and they said, here's what we'll do. We're going to keep half the money and we'll give the other half to the church and we'll say when they ask, uh, was this everything you got for the property? We'll say, oh yeah, this is everything. We're giving 100% of what we got for that property when really they were keeping back part of it for themselves. So that way they didn't have to give all their money, but they got all the glory. And they were being deceptive. This was a lie right here by people who were ostensibly members of the church. Now, how did this go for them? We keep reading in Acts 5 in verse 3. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? You see, Peter was saying, you didn't have to give all the money. When you sold that land, the money was yours to do with as you pleased. So the problem wasn't that they didn't give all their money to the church, but that they were lying about how much they were giving so that they would be uh, puffed up, so that it would make them look good. But Peter says, why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. Verse 5 says, When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, Did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. 
What a terrible story this is. First of corruption in the church and lying and deception, but then uh, of swift judgment against the, this man and this wife. And some might be inclined to ask, why such a harsh penalty for Ananias and Sapphira? Why is it that, you know, they lied and they dropped dead, but then others come along and others lie and others deceive in the church and they don't, they don't experience the same thing. They don't just drop dead as soon as they lie. Well, this is an illustration for the early Christians and for anyone outside the church who might have been watching that nobody is able to subvert God for their own personal pride and glory. God was not fooled by this deception and uh, he didn't allow Peter and the apostles to be fooled by it either. You see, this was a message to any who might try to do as Ananias and Sapphira did, that there would be consequences. And so uh, this incident worked as it was supposed to. Verse 11 says, fear came on all the church. You can bet that for a long time afterwards, nobody tried to do as Ananias and Sapphira did and to deceive the congregation in this way. So we see even in the very beginning of the church, it wasn't perfect, at least according to the human understanding of perfection. You see, very early on, there's people like Ananias and Sapphira who lied and who deceived. And we could perhaps question the, the sincerity of their Christian faith, whether they really believed what they uh, were doing or if they just were part of this church in hopes of uh, getting glory in this way. So, you know, starting out very early in the book of Acts, there's no perfect church to be found in the sense of a church that was free from sinners, free from deceptive people and, and hypocrites. But let's keep going. Maybe we need to look elsewhere. Maybe we need to look among the companions of the apostles. Surely, if, if there were good people to be found, it would be among uh, the traveling companions of people like Peter and, and Paul and so forth. Well, let's look at a man named Demas. Demas is listed in Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24 as a co-worker in the gospel. He was someone who worked with the Apostle Paul and who traveled with him and was involved in teaching and spreading the gospel. And there's not a whole lot said about what he did, but he is named as a faithful co-worker of Paul's. But then, all of a sudden, things change quite drastically. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, we read, Paul says, Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world. Now, we don't know what caused it, but Demas changed his mind. This man who had traveled with Paul, who had been his companion, all of a sudden decided he didn't want to do that any longer. In fact, he didn't want to, he didn't want to be tied down to the church any longer. That's, that's the meaning of this. He didn't just desert Paul personally, but he turned back 
into his old ways of, of worldly living. He loved the things of the world, whether that was money or pleasure or whatever it might have been. Uh, he was attracted away from spiritual things. And in one of the darkest periods of Paul's ministry, quite literally, because Paul was sitting in a prison cell at this point, awaiting his execution, at this dark moment, Demas deserted him. Demas left. And we don't read of Demas ever coming back to the church. So even a little later on in, in the history of the church, looking at the, the traveling companions of the apostles, there were people who were imperfect. There were people who uh, sinned and who even deserted and left the church never to return. So again, we're left wondering, where is the perfect church? Uh, if we're, by perfect, we mean there was no mistake, there was no conflict, there was no sin. Well, you won't find it in Demas. This is a brief but a tragic example. Let's look at one more along this line of thinking. That's Diotrephes. I love the letter of 3 John because John's letters are all about love and, and brotherly love and the kind of love that Christians should show towards one another. And he gives the proper application of brotherly love. In some letters, people were not showing enough love and in others, people were showing too much love. And John describes how to find that balance. Third John is an interesting letter because it's a personal letter to a worker of the church named Gaius. And uh, apparently this Gaius was a friend, uh, a, a beloved companion of John's. And John was working elsewhere in the world while this man Gaius was uh, in a congregation. And in 3 John verses 9 and 10, we read this. John says, I wrote something to the church but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why, if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Now this is possibly the worst example that we've come across so far. Here we have this man, Diotrephes, and the kind of character that he had was he liked to be head. He liked to be first place. And he wanted everybody to listen to him. He enjoyed having power. And somehow or another, he came to power in this congregation and he used it for his own gain. He used it to be a dictator in this congregation that Gaius was a part of. It says that Diotrephes rejected the authority of John. John tried to send another letter and Diotrephes kicked out the messengers. He wouldn't let that letter uh, be read in the congregation. Furthermore, he slandered the apostle John with malicious words. He used gossip 
and secret conversations to try to, uh, to tear down John's authority as an apostle and probably to build himself up too. And uh, he, he refuses to have fellowship with the apostles and, and the messengers the apostles are sending. And not only that, but if other people try to listen to John and do the right thing, he rejects them and he kicks them out of the church. I don't know how he was able to do that. Um, I don't know where his authority came from. Maybe it was his house that the church was meeting in. And so he used that as leverage to uh, eject people from the assembly and to have them shunned in the congregation. But this is a terrible situation. And it's not one that's unheard of even today where uh, a man sets himself up as Lord over the church and he does the opposite of what a good leader is supposed to do. But he domineers and he forces people to submit to his authority. Now, what should we do in this kind of situation? It's a terrible situation. And John says that he was going to come very soon in person and speak to Diotrephes face to face and to show everybody who he really was. And, you know, there is a place for those who are in a leadership position in the church to carry out church discipline. And if somebody is being unruly and knows what they ought to be doing and how they should behave but refuses to do it, there's a liable cause to eject that person from the congregation. But what if you're just a regular member and you see this going on, you're kind of in Gaius's shoes and you don't know what to do. How should you respond to this situation? I love verses 11 and 12 here in 3 John. John says, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself. And we also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. So what is Gaius supposed to do or any regular member of a congregation when you see this going on? First of all, don't imitate it. You know what's good. Don't copy what is bad, but make the commitment to keep doing what you know is right. You know, there are so many people who use hypocrites and, and very obvious uh, wrong situations in a church to make excuses for themselves. And they say, well, that person over there, he's not doing the right thing. So why should I have to do that? If he's getting away with it, then why shouldn't I just behave however I want? That's not the instruction of the Apostle John. He says, you know what is good, therefore imitate what is good. Make the commitment that this kind of behavior stops with you. And you're going to be the model of what is right. And furthermore, reject what is bad. Don't let men like Diotrephes get away with this. And don't make excuses for them, but stand up to them. And uh, stand up to them, you know, using the truth, showing them that what they're doing is wrong. And then he says, hold up other peoples who are 
example of, uh, examples of good leaders. People like Demetrius, this man who has a good testimony. The apostles and, and even the truth speak well of him. He's the kind of leader who should be held up and offered as an example. But we see here even in the very late stages of the early church, this is the end of the first century after the Apostle Paul has died. Even then, if you're looking for a perfect church, one that is free of drama and free of any sort of conflict, well, we can't find it here. Because even in churches associated with the apostles, you have people who were like Diotrephes, domineering and divisive, taking over some congregations. So we've got to keep looking. Now we've noticed three examples here, people who were not right with the Lord. And their lack of Christian character, their lack of true devotion to the faith is what motivated them to act in the way that they did. But I've got three more examples here for you of people who are spoken well of and yet didn't get along all the time and even made mistakes. Let's look in Philippians 4 verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we know that godly women figured prominently in the Philippian congregation. In fact, you know, in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas first come to Philippi, they don't find even enough faithful Jews to form a synagogue, but they do find godly women down at the river praying. And from that group, they converted Lydia, who's described as a God-fearing woman. Lydia was the first convert in Philippi, and actually they used her house as sort of a base of operations and a, and a meeting place while they were in Philippi. And here in the epistle to the Philippians, we learn of two other godly women, Euodia and Syntyche. And apparently they aided Paul greatly. They're numbered in here with a, a group of co-workers, he calls them. Uh, people whose names are written in the book of life. And yet, there was a division. There was an argument that was going on between these two women. And I don't know what the cause of the problem was, but they had become estranged. They were not getting along with each other. These women who were godly women, who were co-workers and helpers of the Apostle Paul, and yet they had an interpersonal conflict that they needed help figuring out. Now, what was the instruction here? Paul says, first of all, to them, he says, I urge you to agree in the Lord. He exhorts these women that they need to resolve the conflict. They don't need to let this keep going on, but they need to find a way to work it out and agree in the Lord, resolve whatever the difficulty was. That was important 
for them not to be divided like that. Uh, but then he says to the person he's writing the letter to, whoever would receive this letter, he says, uh, you know, I ask you to help these women as well. So this person who maybe was part of their congregation is instructed to help them work it out too. Not to come give accusations or take sides, but to help come to a resolution here, help them work it out. And how are they going to do this? They're going to be of the same mind. They're going to have the mind of Christ. And they're going to, uh, through brotherly love and peace and gentleness, they're going to figure out how to resolve this issue. And that's so important. Uh, a, a scripture that came to my mind as I read this was Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul says it is vitally important that there be no divisions. And, and when, uh, when conflicts come up between brothers and sisters, or brothers and brothers, or sisters and sisters, do your best to keep the unity of the Spirit. How do you do that? Through the bond of peace. You remember, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're trying to do our best to get along. And we've got to do that in humility and in gentleness. You know, there was conflict even with the Apostle Paul and his companions. Uh, we read in Acts 15, verses 36 through 40 of an incident here. It says, After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. Now we know of Paul and Barnabas and of their great companionship in their first journey, but now they want to go on a second journey. And Barnabas wants to use this as an opportunity for his cousin John Mark to get a second chance. You see, back in Acts 13, verse 13, it says that this young man, John Mark, had come along with them part of the way, but then for whatever reason, he had decided to go back to Jerusalem before the journey was complete. And you know, this hurt Paul's feelings. He felt abandoned. He felt like this man had deserted him. So while Barnabas thought this would be a good opportunity for John Mark to redeem himself, Paul was skeptical. He said, I don't want somebody coming along who might abandon me again. No, he had a chance and he blew it. And I want somebody else who I can rely on. 
You see, there wasn't a sin here, but there was a personality difference. There was a disagreement about expediency, you know, which thing would be the best thing to do. And yet, this disagreement was so sharp, Paul and Barnabas finally said, we've just got to go separate ways because we can't resolve this. Now, that's incredible. And again, there was no sin here. There was just disagreement. There was personality conflict. They both thought that their reason was the better one. Now, how did this work out? We see the right way to work out these kind of disagreements. First of all, they realized they weren't going to agree, and this was not a matter of doctrine or anything like that, but this was a personal choice. They were at liberty to choose who they wanted to travel with, and they decided they just needed to part ways. And without further argument, that's what they did. But you know, as you read later on in the Scriptures, they didn't hold this against each other. In fact, in Philemon 24, Paul mentions John Mark as a, as a co-worker in the gospel. And then in Colossians 4.10, he says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So not only was John Mark later considered a co-worker by Paul, but Paul even says, I wrote to you about John Mark. He's a good man, and you welcome him when he comes to you. And then 2 Timothy 4.11, at the end of Paul's life, when he's in prison, he tells Timothy, bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. So see, Paul didn't hold this against Barnabas. He didn't even hold it against Mark. But they later reconciled, and they became uh, fellow co-workers once again in the gospel. But you see here how we may have conflict in the church even just as a result of personality differences where there was no sin, but we disagree about uh, you know, these things of expediency, what would be best. And it is possible to resolve them, but they do happen even in the Lord's church, even among people like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. I've got one more here. This is perhaps the most impactful example here. It involves the Apostle Peter in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. And this incident we're reading about took place in Antioch. Now, if there was ever a congregation somebody might want to be part of, it would be Antioch, I'm sure. This is the place where the disciples were first called Christians in Acts 11, verse 26. This is the congregation where Jews and Gentiles first worshipped together. And members of this congregation were people like Peter and Barnabas and Paul. Wouldn't you want to go to church with Paul and Peter and Barnabas? That'd be great. And yet even here, we find this congregation was not perfect in the flawless sense where nobody ever made a mistake. Let's read Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. This is Paul writing. And he said, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. 
For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Now what's going on here is that problem with Judaizing teachers that we've talked about before. That is, Jewish converts to Christianity were teaching Gentile converts that they had to keep certain aspects of the Law of Moses, like circumcision and dietary restrictions and that sort of thing. Now, you remember Peter was the very first one to be shown by God that Gentiles were no longer going to be separated, but they were going to have equal status in the kingdom of God. This is back in Acts 10 when he has the vision of the sheet with all the different animals in it, and God tells him to eat the animals in the sheet, you know, that's being lowered from heaven. And Peter says, no, I won't do it, Lord, because I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, don't call what I have made or what I have made clean unclean. And so Peter had this miraculous vision, and then later he's called to preach to Cornelius, the first Gentile who would become a Christian. And so Peter, of anybody, should have known what was right to do as far as treating Gentiles equally, uh, just as, as equal as Jewish Christians. And yet, apparently, influential people were coming to visit the, the congregation at Antioch, and Peter stopped what he had been doing. He stopped treating those Gentile Christians without partiality, and he sort of separated himself from them. He held them at arm's length. He didn't go eat with them anymore in an effort to appease these Juda Judaizing teachers that were coming to the congregation. Now, this was a sin right here. And Paul calls it out. He says this was hypocrisy on Peter's part. He stood condemned. There would have been eternal consequences if Peter, has, if Peter had continued down this path of showing partiality. So think about that. We have even the Apostle Peter here who at one time stood condemned as a hypocrite in the church. Now, a lot of people use hypocrite, uh, hypocrites as an excuse to avoid being a member of a church. They'll say, I don't want to be a member of a church because there could be hypocrites in there. And I'm looking for a church that doesn't have any. Well, you're going to have to keep looking because even the apostle Peter was a hypocrite on this occasion. And he didn't mean to. Uh, and eventually he... He did correct how he was acting. Uh, and he conceded, you know, Paul was right. I was wrong. And yet he wasn't perfect. And so think about this. Think about all these examples that we've looked at right here. Whether it was 
uh, because of personal sin and people who perhaps weren't even really converted to Christ, or people who are spoken of as faithful Christians and workers in the church and even apostles. But in all of these cases, there wasn't a perfect church to be found in the sense that the people who were members of it were flawless and they never made mistakes and they were never hypocrites or they always got along. There was never any drama or personal division. So we failed in our search. If we're looking for a perfect church based on the human factor, the people who are members of it, you're never going to find a perfect church. So how do we reconcile this with what is taught elsewhere about the church? I want to consider just very briefly on the other side of the board here. What is it that makes the church perfect? Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Here's an illustration about the church. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. You see, the church of Jesus is not perfect because on the congregational level, level, every person is flawless, is sinless, always gets along, never makes mistakes. That's not what makes the church perfect. The church is perfect because Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. And through Jesus' perfect sacrifice, He can make the members of the church holy, sanctified, set apart for a special purpose. We have a beautiful description of the church here. It says he's, He is washing, He is cleansing the church so that He may present it to Himself in splendor. When it comes time for the wedding, for the church to be united with Jesus, that church is going to be glorious. It's going to be splendid to look at. It says there'll be no spot or wrinkle to be found on the church, but it'll be holy and blameless. But we're in the middle of that process right now. The preparation is ongoing. And friends, that's why we're here. That's why we're in the church. We come to the church not because it's perfect, but we come to be made perfect. And this process begins with the washing of water by the Word. Now that's baptism right there. And that lines up with, if we go all the way back to the beginning of Acts, to Acts 2.47, it says, Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Those who listened to Peter's lesson, and they repented, and they were baptized, it says they were saved. They were added 
to the church. Now, they were saved in the sense that they were delivered from the consequences of sin. They were rescued in, in being baptized and repenting and, and committing to the faithful Christian life. They were saved from the consequences of their sin. But they weren't perfect right away. In fact, the work of sanctifying was just beginning. And we need to understand that when we come to the church, we're not perfect right away, but it's the beginning of the process. When you're baptized, you start that work of being cleansed and being made holy and being presented to Jesus without spot or wrinkle. And this is a process that takes work on our part. We get to Colossians 3, and I love the first part of Colossians 3. That's where uh, Paul talks about, you know, when you are in Christ, you are, you're a new creation. You have, you, you've got to put off the old person. You've got to put on Christ. And he talks about all these things that we need to do and how we need to act and behave. But then in verses 12 through 15, we find out our obligation extends to others as well. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. That's the members of the church right there. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. This comes right after the new creation. When you're baptized and you begin your Christian walk, now you've got to learn how to live peaceably with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And think about this. This is the splendor of the church. This is what's so glorious about the church is not that everybody who comes to the church is immediately perfect, but the church draws people from all walks of life, people who are imperfect, who make mistakes, who are sinners, and it molds them into a people who are sanctified, they're set apart for God, and they are unified in one purpose. And everybody learns how to get along with one another. And we do that through emulating Christ. It's so much easier to get along when you are filled with the love of Christ. One more scripture here. I love this. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 through 13, Paul inserts a little prayer here for this congregation. And he says, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May He make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Amen. And this ought to be the prayer of our congregation. This should be the prayer of every congregation that's faithful to the Lord, that 
we will continue to increase and to overflow in love. You see, we shouldn't, we shouldn't seek to join a church, join a congregation, because it's already perfect. But we should join the church to be made perfect, to be transformed into the image of Christ, and to be molded each and every day a little bit closer into the image of Christ. But it takes work. It takes effort, and it takes love on our part. We have to understand all congregations will experience internal problems from time to time. Even in the early church, even in congregations that were guided by the apostles who had spiritual gifts, they were not immune to things like interpersonal conflict. That's not what it means to be a perfect church. The Lord's church is perfect, even when the members are not always perfect, not always flawless. But that's the point. That's the purpose of the church. And that's the reason why we are here. We're here because we're learning to be a little bit more perfect each and every day. That concludes my thoughts on this subject. And we want to close with the invitation. I want to remind you again, this process begins with baptism. We don't baptize people, or people shouldn't seek to be baptized because they're already perfect. They're already flawless. They've got it all under control. But in Acts 2, the call was he who believes, uh, the call was repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. It was baptism to be saved from the consequences of sin. And baptism is the very beginning of this process by which we become perfected. So if you're subject to the gospel call, you want to be baptized to become a Christian and to be added to the church and to be saved, we invite you to do that right now. Or if you have another spiritual need, please come forward while we stand and while we sing this song. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from the Oyster Bay Church of Christ in Crawfordville, Florida. I hope you've been blessed by its message. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, or if you'd like to hear more preaching by the members of our congregation, visit our website at www.obcoc.org. I'm Hayden, and on behalf of the congregation, we wish you a blessed day.